That was a great song, sir. I could stand up here and read the phone book and sound brilliant at this point because that was a great praise and worship service. You know, you kind of get out of it what you put into it. And y'all sounded great today. By the way, last week we were talking about getting involved in a ministry in the church and to the church. And a number of people filled out this Connect card who weren't currently involved in a ministry. Check this box down here. I'd like to learn more about serving that. Appreciate that. And I know that even some more, many more who maybe didn't necessarily check that this past week are thinking about it, have had conversations with me. And appreciate that. That's something to continue to think about and to pray about. But now for today, did you know if you Google... This phrase, Joe Biden is a liar. If you Google that, you'll get two million hits and change. Two million and change. If you Google Donald Trump is a liar, you'll get four million hits and change. And for giggles and kicks, I Googled Steve Jones is a liar. I'm telling you. 63 million hits. I am not kidding. Now, I'm no paragon of virtue, but I was sobered by that. 63 million hits. Now, in all fairness to me, I think that probably has more to do with Steve Jones, lead guitarist for the Sex Pistols, who is not me. Yes. But we're talking about honesty today. A New York Times article a while back was entitled, What a Tangled Web We Weave When All Practice to Deceive. In that article it says, 91% confess that they regularly don't tell the truth. 20% say they can't get through a day without premeditated white lies. They editorialize, we've moved far away from a society in which a man's word is his bond to one where people are more accepting than ever of exaggerations, falsifications, fabrications, misstatements, equivocation, and varnished truth. Now, if you're new to us today, we have some new folks here. We're in a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. We're winding down. Today, we're on the Ninth Commandment, Commandment number nine. When I hear number nine, you know what I think of? Dr. Knickerbocker, Knickerbocker, number nine. Anybody watch the Wiggles? I watch too much Wiggles, too many grandkids. But anyway, the uh, ninth commandment is the one about lying. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Of course, the concept carried over into the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. The eternal doctrine here is the sanctity of truth. Simply want to ask and answer four questions about the truth today. Number one, does truth exist? Does truth exist? One social commentator says, denial of absolute truth is the most pervasive and far-reaching feature of 20th, 21st century Western thinking. The Western thinking, that's us. We're in the West, in America the idea that there is no such thing as absolute truth characterizes our time and our culture. Pilate went to ask, what is truth? What is truth? There was a time when most people could answer that with a certain degree of certainty. Now people are asking, is anything true? And the answer often comes back, no. 
In the 20th century, there was truth is relative. Whether or not something is true depends on the circumstances. 21st century postmodern society is the idea of truth as a social construct. People can get together and we'll agree that certain things are true for us, may not be true for others. The, the concept or theory of truth that most of us probably grew up with is called the correspondence theory of truth. That is, that is true which corresponds to reality. It's true if it corresponds to reality. Now, we grew up with that. That's the most intuitive sense, common sense idea of what is true. But common sense, you may have discovered, is not as common as it used to be. Why all the ambiguity in our culture, in our society, about absolute truth? I just want to think about that for a minute. It has to do, in large part, to what philosophers call the egocentric predicament. The egocentric predicament is this. We are finite beings. We are limited by a number of things. We're limited by the bandwidth in our brain. There's only so much we can learn. We're limited by geography. You've only been to so many places. We're limited by our lifespan. We're only going to live 70, 75 years, give or take. So there's only so much you can learn having been to those places, lived that long. And there's more that we don't know than that, that we do know. So I, I illustrate this with the, the hula hoop. Do you want to see me do the hula hoop? I'm sorry to disappoint you today. I can't do the hula hoop because I'm a man. All right. But I'm going to put this down. So this, let's say this circumference represents what I know, what I have been able to learn in my lifespan, the places that I've been, the education that I have. So is there more inside the hoop or outside the hoop? Obviously, there's, the whole universe is outside this hoop. There's more that we don't know than that we do know. We don't even know what we don't know. And so a postmodernist would say, all right, you, you say you're certain about things, certain truths that you believe. How can you be certain? How do you know that there's some place where what you believe is not true. Or there's some knowledge that you have not afforded yourself that would disabuse you of that truth, right? Or that if you could have lived longer, other people that have lived at other times know things that you don't know, which disproves what you believe to be true. That's called the egocentric predicament. The problem is there's no one with a view from nowhere, so to speak. And so thus there's an ambiguity in our society, an ambivalence about the idea of absolute truth. Now you may be thinking, well, thanks a lot, Steve. I'm so glad I came to church today so I could doubt everything that I once thought that I knew. Well, we're not going to land there. That's not where we wind up. Let's say two or three things here in favor of the idea of absolute truth. Number one, to say there's no such thing as absolute truth is a self-refuting statement. Can you see that? Hey, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Are you absolutely sure about that? Yes, I'm absolutely sure there's no such thing as absolute truth. How can you know that to be true? That's a self-refuting statement. It's called a suicide statement in philosophy. Number two, the existence of God. Now, we believe there's a God. The existence of God makes truth possible. God is the one with a view from nowhere. God does not experience the egocentric predicament. His bandwidth is not limited. 
We call this the omniscience of God. He knows everything, and He knows those things with certainty, with absolute certainty. He is not limited by a lifespan. We call that the eternality of God. He is not limited by geography. We call that the omnipresence of God. So what is truth? Truth exists. Absolute truth exists. It's equal to the contents of the mind of God. That's truth. The contents of the mind of God. And fortunately, God has revealed some of that truth to us. We call it revelation, word revelation. We call it the Bible, the Word of God. So those things that God has told us, we can know, and we can know that they are true. And a third thing is, the Bible makes it clear, God's expectation of us is to learn truth and to obey the truth. That means it must be possible. We must be capable of learning, understanding, comprehending, and obeying the truth. It's part of being created in the image of God that we can know truth. God absolutely, clearly expects us to do that. 1 Timothy, for instance, 2.4. God desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. That means there's truth. There's truth that could be known, and God expects us to know it, and He expects us to obey it. All right, so we're just looking at four questions about truth today. And I hope for for some who may struggle with that concept, ambivalence about truth, that's helpful. That's helpful. Is there such a thing as truth? Yes. Yes, there is truth. All right, second question. Why is telling the truth important? It's important for a couple of reasons. The first one is because of the nature of our God. The nature of our God is truth. The Hebrew writer says, Hebrews 6.18, it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. John 14, 6, Jesus says of himself, I am the truth. Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, he is the spirit of truth. Jesus says about the word of God, for instance, what we have in the Bible, that your word is truth. It is the nature of God to be true. He cannot tell a lie. He cannot not tell the truth. By the way, That's the foundation of the assurance of our salvation. No matter how we feel at any given moment, I don't feel saved today. Well, that's not the the foundation of the assurance of our salvation. God has said of a person who believes the gospel, repents of their sin, confesses Jesus as Lord, baptized into Christ, there are certain promises that are attendant to that person. Promises, forgiveness of sin, gift of the Holy Spirit, promise of eternal life placed in Christ, receiving the righteousness of Christ. Those are some of those promises. They're in the Word of God. That's how we have assurance. God doesn't lie. He cannot not keep His Word. But anyway, the point being that this is the nature of God. We are created in His image. Therefore, when we are speaking the truth and living the truth, we are living an integrated life with the way God has created us. We're being true to that. To live otherwise, to live the lie, to tell the lie, is to pervert the God nature within us. Satan doesn't have that nature. Jesus says of Satan in John 8, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. 
Now, the other reason is that telling the truth is the foundation of a decent society. We all live in community. This is a community right here, the community of the church. We may live in a neighborhood. We live in a town. We live in a state. We live in a country. We have a society, and there must be a baseline level of trust for that society to function and to function decently. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Paul says, stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth because we are members of one another. We're members of one another with our neighbors in our culture and in our society. When there's a breakdown of trust in the authorities, right, the institutions, the leaders in a country, that country begins to break down, breakdown of trust, breakdown of that culture and that society. Last October, a couple of Ohio fishermen were indicted for attempted grand theft. The two guys were in a competition on Lake Erie at the Walleye Trail Tournament when they allegedly hooked what seemed to be two seven-pound walleyes. Apparently, some of the honchos were suspicious. They cut the fish open and found weights inside the fish. The fish actually weighed four or five pounds. Had they been declared the winners, they would have pocketed $28,000. These guys have been under suspicion for cheating in other tournaments, but there wasn't enough evidence to charge them. What's the world coming to when you can't trust a couple of fishermen? But it's true not only of a tournament, it's true of all kinds of communities. Okay, so it's important to tell the truth. Number three, what counts as a lie? Thou shalt not lie. Well, what do we mean by lying? Jack Cottrell writes this, any behavior that is deliberately intended to deceive someone else. So we can make a mistake. We might mistakenly state something that's not true because we didn't know that. That's not a lie. There's no intent. There's no deliberation. Any words or any actions that deliberately deceive other people. Look at four ways to lie. False witness in a court. Exodus 23.1. You must not cooperate with evil people by lying on the witness stand. But not just in a court. Any verbal lying. Any verbal line, Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another. One commentator said this includes straight out lying as well as deceitful partial truths, exaggerations, distortions, misrepresentations, flattery, making promises you don't intend to keep, taking other statements out of context, and the proverbial deceitful spin. Different ways to lie. We can also lie by being silent, just by not saying anything. When we should speak up, but we don't speak up. James 4, 17, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not to do it. There are people who are convicted and go to jail because witnesses who knew the truth and had exculpatory evidence would not speak up on their behalf. Maybe they were afraid, retaliation, but they wouldn't speak up. There are innocent people who go to jail, and there are guilty people who go scot-free. Again, because people are silent, and they won't speak up. In 2009, Jeremy Affelt was coming off the best season of his eight-year career as a relief pitcher for the San Francisco Giants. His agent, his name is Mike Moya, negotiated a contract that pleased both the client and the Giants, but Moya discovered an error by the Giants' front office, resulting in Affelt receiving $500,000 more than his agreed-upon salary. Half a million dollars more. Now, technically, the money belonged to Affelt, 
contract was signed, the ink was dry. And in that dog-eat-dog world of sports, a lot of people would keep it, and they wouldn't have blamed them for keeping it. Can you say Jerry Maguire? Show me the what? Show me the money. But Affelt and Moya, both the, the baseball player and his agent, are both Christians. And it was Moya who found the mistake. And they decided they would bring it to the attention of the Giants and return the money. They returned a half a million dollars. And here's what they said. They said, a core value that we both operate on is that we are to be true to our faith in Christ. We'll be true. In other words, they could have been silent and said nothing, but they felt that by being silent in that example would have been to deceive. And then a fourth way, a fourth, we're talking, how can you lie? Is lying by lifestyle, by lifestyle. Jesus excoriated the religious leaders of his day for living as hypocrites, for wearing a mask, for pretending to be something that they weren't. Matthew 23, for instance, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's important for all Christians to live with integrity and not be hypocrites, especially though we who are Christian leaders, we who are Christian leaders. I was reading a book called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. This is a, it's a Christian classic. Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. Every Christian would benefit from reading this book. But early on in the book, he talks about, he was wrestling with an issue. And so he called for a friend of his named Bill Cathers to come over and pray for him during this time. Pray for him in this issue. Bill Cathers was a, an elder and he was a former missionary and had accumulated wisdom. And so Bill Cathers said, okay, now Bill Gaither, Bill Cathers, he came over. As soon as he came in and sat down, Richard Foster said, Bill Cathers began to confess his sin. And Foster was thinking to himself, what in the world? What in the world? Cathers is confessing his sins. And when he got done, he looked at Richard Foster and he said, now, do you still want me to pray for you? And Foster said, yes. But Foster says he realized Bill Cathers is a very perceptive man and had perceived that Richard Foster had him kind of on a pedestal. And he wanted to take himself down off that pedestal. I'm just like everybody else. And one of the antidotes, not the only one, but one of the antidotes to deceit and hypocrisy is transparency in our lives. Is confessing our sin. Both to God and to another Christian on occasion. When we confess our sin, we're telling the truth and we're telling the truth about ourselves. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. So those are some different ways to lie. And fourthly and finally, just asking questions about the truth today. What's so bad about lying? What's so bad about lying? Here are three things. Number one, God hates it. God hates the lie. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 to 19. The Lord hates a false witness who pours out lies. As Christians, we Love what God loves, and we hate what God hates 
God hates sin. God hates the lie. We want to come to our, the place in, in our lives where we hate the lie. Number two, the devil loves it. The devil loves the lie. John 8, 44, the devil has always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, it's consistent with his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Elf might say the devil sits on a throne of lies. And finally, judgment awaits it, the lie. Judgment awaits it. Revelation 21, 8, cowards, unbelievers, murderers, the immoral, sorcerers, idol worshipers, and all liars. Their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Conversely. So the flip side of that is, as Christians, we are to tell the truth. In fact, the Bible says we're to tell the truth in love. In love. Some, now, some of us may fancy ourselves, I'm a truth teller. I just tell the truth. I let the chips fall where they may. Somebody doesn't like it, that's their problem. We may want to cushion that a little bit. The Bible says, tell the truth in love. And sometimes the truth can come across harshly if we're not telling it in love. I like what Dr. Laura Schlesinger said about this in her book on the Ten Commandments. She said, honesty means that everything you say must be true, but not that everything that is true must be said. Now, Jesus tells the truth. Jesus is a, a truth teller. There's no bait and switch with Jesus. A lot of us use the one-year Bible for our, our devotions, our daily devotions. I do, and a lot of us do. Not everybody, but, but in today's one-year Bible reading, it's Mark chapter 8 in the New Testament portion. And in Mark chapter 8, Jesus said, if any man would come after me and be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, Jesus is telling the truth right there. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, we have to be willing to do hard things. We do some hard things. We must deny ourselves. And the reason it includes self-denial, discipleship includes self-denial, is because our God-given desires, which are good, those God-given desires have become distorted by sin. So we have distorted desires. And if we just follow them and follow our hearts and follow our emotions and follow our feelings and just do what feels good, which is what the world, our culture says, you got to put yourself first. Don't deny yourself anything. Take care of number one. Then everything else will fall into place. That's the opposite of what Jesus is saying. He said, you can't trust that heart. There's distortion that has taken place because of sin. We have to look outside of ourselves to the will of God and the Word of God. That's how we know what's true. That's how we know where to go, what the right or the wrong thing is. And that means we're going to need to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. It's hard sometimes, but we can do hard things. The Holy Spirit lives within us, and with God's help, we can do hard things. Now, Jesus used himself as an example. That come in, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. It's in the context of Jesus talking about what he's about to do. He's going to Jerusalem. He's telling the disciples, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise on the third day. They didn't totally get that, but he's telling them. Jesus denied himself and took up his cross. We say, well, we have to deny ourselves 
because of our sin and distorted desires. Why would Jesus have to deny himself? Because of sin. Not his sin, because of our sin. He had to deny himself and take up that cross, not because of his sin or distorted desires, because of our sin, our sin. 